You are listening to I Survived the Wild Outdoors podcast, where real outdoors men and women share their heroic tales of survival. I'm your host, Brad Mathewson, and this is their story. Today's guest is Matt Potratz. He has risen from the ashes of his former life as an elite backcountry snowmobile rider for 509 Films and has been reborn with a new purpose in life. His new focus is motivating people with his inspirational story and his positive outlook on life. Matt's world of mountain adventure came crashing down while he was filming a scene for the movie A Calculated Risk when an avalanche caught him by surprise and buried Matt and his sled in a white powder tomb on March 1st, 2009. He has since written a book about his experience called Two Hands. Hi, Matt. Can you tell us what happened that day? Yeah, Brad. So, I guess leading up to that day, you know, that I, I experienced a lot of success on a snowmobile, more or less on accident. Like, I just loved the sport, and I was good at it, and I enjoyed it, and I rode with passion, and, and that passion got recognized by the camera crew, and they asked me to come ride with them, and then from there, it just took off like wildfire. I rode in seven different snowmobile films for the course of a five-year period, and I was uh, respected as one of the better ones in the field. I, I got rid of the top five guys in the world, and gotten to really do a lot of cool things and so but that day was that uh, we were filming for uh with with Tuesday Productions for a, a segment in the movie I calculated risk and that was um we knew there was some risk for avalanches that day so we were somewhat careful we we worked our way around the, the ridge of Twin Lakes area and there's some, some shoots there called the upper twin shoots and we we initially pulled up on those and we Set the camera up and get ready to film. And I got to the bottom of the shoot and looked up at it and, and just looked around. And I don't really have much memory of that moment. But the guys tell me that I rode back to the camera and just said, guys, I don't know why, but I just don't think it's, it's right today. Let's don't do this stuff. Let's stay off the big stuff. Let's go to the Brennage side, which is the Brennage Reservoir side of the mountain. It's still towards Brennage Ski Hill, as a matter of fact. And so let's go over there because the, the, the mountain's more littered with trees and rocks and things that typically hold the snow in place. So we don't see many big slides over there. So we worked our way over there. And um, there's one pretty good size shoot over there that's got, it's kind of not really wide open. It's got a shoot and then breaks out on the small open base. And so we would kind of discuss it as a group and discuss it would be probably relatively safe in the snow conditions. Because what we, what, if you look at the, the the pattern per se, is that you got one of those uh you know, late February warm-ups when it warms up a little bit and it gets kind of slushy and freezes back again. And then uh, that early March snow falls a couple of feet. And, and so it's kind of, and we knew, again, there's risk of it, but people ridicule me sometimes for taking risks that day, but there's always risk. And so we did, we, we did what we thought was right. And so I climbed the hill and I, I climbed the chute no problem. And I broke out of the chute on a little open face and I was, about ready to go over the top and 25 yards above me the snow fractured off about uh, two two and a half feet deep the entire mountain and, and just took me took me off the sled and, and separated me and, and I went off a small rock bluff and with my sled right behind me and down the hill a little ways and got crushed into a big snag about two and a half feet on the stump and and then buried me below the snag and so naturally group of course initially was like being near panic right yep. 
spread out on the mountain trying to find me. And initially they thought, oh my gosh, we got him here. He's already got him. He's over here. They saw my bright orange uh, fly helmet sticking out of the snow. They rushed over to it, dug all the snow around it to pick up an empty helmet. Oh no. Like a fully intact tin strap, but no, no mat, you know, anywhere. But naturally that's going to make somebody freak out. And what's weird is the tin strap was intact. I wore my tin strap apparently just loose enough or ripped the helmet right off my head and the force to blow. And so they, they eventually, they got their avalanche beacons out. We were trained with them. We knew how to use them. Everyone in the group had one. They turned the beacons on. The beacons began to lead in the right direction to walk. And they, one of the guys alerted the group and said, Hey, I, I think I see his hand. They saw my fingers sticking out of the snow. But, you know, um, you just don't find a pair of fingers on a mountainside full of snow. No. Without some kind of guidance. You know, that beacon saved my life. And and so they they found my fingers and that was my uh, what what eventually became my paralyzed arm. That was the arm that was straight up in the snow and they they dug down a full arm's depth. Is how deep it was. This is the length of my arm, which I have pretty long arms. I'm six foot three, and so they dug down my arm's depth, found my body, found my ears, nose, mouth, just packed with snow. And they they knew there that they were had to be careful not to move me because of the potential for injuries. Right. Yep. And so they were very careful not to move very much. They knew they also had to get my airway open up. So they took a finger and like fish took the snow out of my mouth to try to me breathing. And I was breathing. They like, like got a lot of weird like wheezing and hissing noises. And I was not conscious at all. I was completely unconscious. And so they did their best just to stabilize me, keep me in the hole until the, they get help there. And so they went to the top of the ridge. We were able to get just a, a light cell phone signal out. Got enough of a call to get a helicopter out. And with those shorts, they thought, yeah, we're on track. Everything's good. Well, then right after that, it just, I guess the weather decided it was going to replenish the snow that fell off the mountain because it started snowing like crazy. So it's pounding snow. They're trying to keep me covered up. They got a big tarp over me and a blanket over me. And, and they, um, the helicopter flew as far as they could, but couldn't. There's a, the perfect lake bed right by the avalanche site, but they couldn't fly there. They couldn't make it there. The snowstorm rejected them. So they initially flew, they landed at McCall Airport and dispatched an ambulance up, up towards the, the heel to come by sled. And so, um, actually, the, I think the rest of the crew had already been dispatched at that point. They were already, already going on the ground crew. So McCall Fire and EMS has a rescue crew. And so they um, headed out that way. And, and the helicopter again made an attempt to fly and still couldn't fly and flew as far as under the ski hill and so they kept coming on the ground and they, they eventually got off to me and the EMS crew and said hey this is bad we have to find a radio helicopter they made a second attempt a third attempt actually to fly out there who couldn't fly there was just too too much snow and so so they had to strap me to a sled they got of course I mean but honestly that crew that day did everything right because had they moved me even an inch or two the wrong way, I would be paralyzed from that neck down. Like that's how close it was. Wow. So they, um, they eventually got me in a, a sled and took me across the snow quite a ways to Bernice Hill and uh, got me in a helicopter, got me around to Boise, and I landed at the helipad on St. Alphonse's Medical Center in Boise five hours from time to avalanche. So a lot of time. Of, <laughs> that is a lot of time. Stressful time with my bike. My friends have been doing an incredible job of keeping their cool and then keeping themselves together and, and getting me down where I need to go. And so they got me to the hospital and they, right on the helipad, they took the gurney of a helicopter and 
what they'd all feared happened. I, I stopped breathing. And so obviously they rushed, rushed around, were just testing me, got me breathing as fast as they could. Got me breathing in and pushed me to ER, discovered the avalanche had just crushed me. Like, they found a broken neck, C4, 5, and 6 just crushed. Compound fractured left femur just like blew my left femur in half. Like, it was a bone fragment with some x ray. Wow. And then it crushed. Apparently, when I hit the tree square on it, crushed my left rib cage. And had I not had a tech vest on, I think it would have killed me real, for real. Because it still crushed my left rib cage. Broke my top two ribs off the sternum, off the middle bone. Wow. Off the sternum. And collapsed my left lung. And then they were puzzled, like, how the helmet get off the guy's head with the chin strap intact? And there's actually abrasions up my face where the chin strap had run. There was so much force from the blow, I wore the chin strap just loose enough. That it took the chin strap up my face and put abrasions up my face and ripped it right off my head. So they were. The big concern was that I'd bounce off the tree like a ragdoll, no protection around my brain. Yep. And so there's hematomas on both sides of my brain, which is blood clotting and blood pooling on both sides of your brain, right? Yep. And so they said, hey, um, Matt's in a state of coma. He's in a comatose state, and um, his brain is badly injured. And, and they said, we don't think he's going to survive the night. They're just like, trying to be real with my family and all that. Brace yourself because you likely won't make the night. You know, and by only by the grace of God, I survived the night. And, and the next day, they had to do what's, what I would call a reality check, right? Where they find out, all right, is there really hope here? You know, is there yeah. any reason to keep this going? Because at that point, I really was pretty much living on a system machine that's breathing for me. And so my heart is still beating, obviously, because the machine is breathing for me, keeping everything rolling. And so they do what's called a, <clears throat> painful stimuli because even in a comatose state, your body and, and brain and, and you should so show some indication you're aware of pain. Okay. So they, they poke you and prod you, shake you like inflict pain and you hoping you'll at least flinch or show some kind of indication you're aware of that, right? Yep. And so they did that several times and they got nothing. Like I was lifeless on the table and they so they, they gathered up and my family and said, hey, it doesn't look good at all, honestly. They're like, he's showing zero response to our input. So we're going to try one last thing, though. We're going to hook a scan to Matt's brain. They said, with the scan in place on his brain, we're going to again inflict pain on him. They said, if he doesn't respond, if his brain doesn't show some response to pain, he said, we're in trouble. We, if there's any hope at all, his brain has to respond to our input, you know? Yeah. And so they took the scan of my brain and began to again poke me and prod me, shake me, and get. They just got nothing. All the scan was just this flat line, like no no indication. Just to confirm it, the neurologist. Uh, one last thing he did was he picked up my left leg, my broken leg, my shattered femur, it had not been treated yet, obviously, right? He picked it up off the table a little ways. He just dropped it, let it free fall, and smacked the table. Oh my lord! And. I don't think I got to tell you that would cause some pain, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say. <laughs> would, without doubt, right? Without a doubt, yeah. And watching the scan, the scan didn't show any indication I was even aware of that. And so he marched out with confidence to tell my family, he said, I'm sorry. He said this, he said, short of a miracle, Matt will not be with us anymore. He said, um, his brain, he said he's, he's breathing, so his heart's beating, but machine's doing that for him. You know, so they said, 
as near as I can tell outside of that, out of that, Matt is essentially brain dead. If we unplug the machine, he'll be gone. And so my family just sat there in, in just for a minute and shocked across this Matt. My, my dad's an amazing man. He's become one of my best friends today. And, and he's, he sat there for a minute and he just, he's, he's a real, a really, I'm sure in that moment he wasn't very calm. He was worked out, but he's, he's a very calm mannered person. He just said, he said, Josh, I'm sorry. He said, Doc, I'm, I'm sorry, but I know if Matt were in my shoes, he would never get up. I'm in this soon. I'm not ready to take that yet. I want a second opinion. And so the doctor reluctantly agreed, and he was pretty sure he was right, but he went down the hallway to find a different opinion. And so in that time frame, my dad went back to the waiting area. He got to go to some of like, his closest friends and put together a little prayer team of about three or four guys, five guys. I went to the room, laid hands on me again, just prayed for me. He's basically this point where he's begging God for mercy, you know? Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm essentially dead. And and, and they've, been about, they've been there about an hour and a half. They're kind of like starting to accept reality. It was probably time to say goodbye, you know? But then a good friend of mine, John Hexton, who you, if you watch your many films, you'll see him riding a few films too. He's a really, really good athlete. Yep. I've seen his he's name. He's very strong. Very strong believer in God too. And he, he was in the room and he said, guys, I'm alive. But I have this weird feeling like, like Matt knows we're in the room. Like he knows we're here. Why don't we see what happens if we try to even respond? Try to drink a little bit of water, but he said, well, let's give it a shot if we try, right? Yeah. So John got right in my face and yelled loudly, like, you have permission to do it, I guess. He said, Matt, it's John. If you can hear me, open your eyes. And I couldn't open my eyes, but to their shock, I fluttered my eyelids, you know, so they knew. He heard us. He heard us. I know he heard us. No. Yep. And so eventually they they um, they said, Matt, if you can hear me, raise your right leg. And I couldn't raise my leg, but to their to their shock, like I tried. Like I, they tell my leg moved a little bit, you know. Yep. And so they eventually they played around a little more, got me to lightly squeeze a hand, and so they knew they knew that. There was, there was some response to my brain, right? So, like, we, we definitely got some here. So, they went and got the doctor. He came walking back in the room. He, yeah, he had my, he had what my dad described to be a poor bedside manner. <laughs> he, he, he was, because he was pretty sure we were wasting time, right? I mean, I was dead, you know? Yeah. And, he, and they said, Doc, I think you responded. Watch this. And they eventually got me to lightly squeeze his hand. And he didn't say much. He just, like, sat back in the bed in shock. And, I mean, an hour and a half earlier, my brain did not respond to any input from of any kind, you know? Yep. And here I was, squeezing hand, and so he gathered my family at that point, and a couple of doctors met with him to say, look, I know it's exciting, you know, my dad sometimes the life, and he goes, look, it's our job to make sure you understand as a family that he's in a comatose state, and we have no way of knowing if he's going to come out. And then they said, if he does, when he does, When he does, he will not be the same Matt you once knew. You know, they said there's hematomas on both sides of the brain, on top of some minor asphyxia, which is, of course lack of oxygen in your brain. Yeah. And they said those those things combined are going to cause some brain damage. You won't be the same person you once knew. You know, so they said on top of that, looking at the scans of Matt's spine, there's a good chance that if he, if he does come out of this, he will never walk again, right? 
And so my family just, they just, at that point, they, of course, they were just shocked and they cried and they, were, they, they mourned that situation, of course. But, um, they had like a deep, they, they, they told me they had like a deep sense that there's, that it was going to be okay. Like God had this, you know? Yeah. And they just began to just sat by bed and just prayed and, and talked to me calmly and encouraged me. And a lot of time passed. 10 days into the coma, 10 days into the coma, something uh, pretty amazing happened that will never be forgotten in my lifetime over theirs. Uh, my boys are, are high school now, but they're much, much younger than they're really young children. They're actually whatever, uh, age one, three, and four. They one, three, and five. Okay. So very young. So they've been not allowed to see their dad yet 10 days into the thing because they're told daddy got hurt real bad. And just needs to sleep for a while because they thought for them to see their dad took tubes and hose and wires and things like that would have been quite scary, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so they're told we, we, you can't see your dad yet, but but they're told we can pick up the phone though. We'll call your daddy and and see if we can hear you talk to him while he sleeps. And my oldest boy Connor spoke up saying, "No, we don't really want to. We don't really want to call daddy and talk to him." And I was kind of shocked. She's like, "Why?" He said, because we want to call him to sing to him. <laughs> <laughs> so here's why. So before they had lunch, I was a musician. I used to play guitar a lot and sing a lot and do different, all kinds of old rock tunes and Christian tunes and worship tunes and all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> so I used to sing along with my boys as much as I could, and they loved the sound of my guitar, and they used to sing along and dance. And their favorite song to sing along to was a song by Matt Redman, called you never let go a lot of guys might be familiar with that right yep and so he says their, their mom says well, what song do you want to sing he said our favorite song never let go their favorite song and and so they called me on a cell phone they put a cell phone in my ear and they sang you know sing off course the song says oh no you never let go through the calm and through the storm oh no you never let go Every high and every low, oh no, you never let go, Lord, you never let go of me. So they they sang it. They couldn't sing very good at that young age. They sang the best they could, and they sang out the chorus of the song. And and I have no memory of it, none at all. But <clears throat> they recorded my in my paperwork there. The, the doctors said or the nurses recorded that I raised my eyebrows and tried to smile. So wow. obviously I heard my boys singing to me. There's no question about that, right? I heard them. Yep. And, and from that point forward, began to show more signs of life, began to show more responsive stimuli, and began to show more hope, right? And so I, I personally believe that <clears throat> while they sing that song, me, I believe a miracle happened in my body, you know, so. And, but a lot of time, a lot more time passed. I was in a coma for much longer. It wasn't until about day 27 I was able to respond to some people and, and extra signs of life it wasn't until day 41 they said it was officially out of comatose state and the doctor was right like I was not the same person like they gave me a pen and asked me to write my name and I couldn't couldn't write the alphabet couldn't do nothing no. and, and they put some flashcards numbers and ABCs in front of me I just couldn't process any of that yet yep. and so they began to just accept reality that it was going to be a long battle, right? And so they 
just my family just refused to lose, lose faith. They just had groups, like they had groups all across the world praying for me because my mom's family are world missionaries and they had teams in India and a couple other countries praying for me as well. And so um, there was just thousands of people praying for me. And the fight just went on and on and on. Uh, I just began to, sh- I guess, defy all the odds and got to where I could eventually walk with him. They got to walk in. I had to walk with a cane for a long time. I could walk. And I was doing things in physical therapy that didn't think were possible. And but the process went on. I was hospitalized for 88 straight days. And I don't think I got to say the 88 days hospital is kind of like being in prison for three months, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, you're stuck in a facility, and I can't help myself, and I can't hardly, I mean, for a lot of that time, I was fed by a tube, and I was eventually was fed by a, a nurse or somebody helped me, and there's a time period when my own brother, who's become one of my best friends, had to change my diapers and everything else, and I was, it was crazy, so wow. um, I was totally, I went from being one of the best athletes in my kind of the world to, to being helpless, can't even changing my own diaper, you know, so. Yeah. My son's saying goodnight to me, so. <laughs> goodnight, bud. Okay, goodnight. My, my young son's saying goodnight to me, so. That's right. I've inherited some new sons. I got married here about a year and a half ago, and I okay. inherited three new kids, so. Wow. <clears throat> Anyways, um, so 88 days later, I got to go home, and I went home to a world that did not know me anymore. And I didn't know my world. Like, I was not the same man at all. Like, you know, you don't just go back to normalcy after that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, it's, it was a, I had to sit there in my chair at home going, wow. You know, I, either I've got to embrace this or, or I'm going to dig a hole. I'm going to keep digging, 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 right? Yeah. You know, and there's a great, great quote that says, when you find yourself in a hole, Mike, the first thing you better do is stop digging, right? <laughs> yep. So, so I just refused to. I one thing that I did too is I refused to have any negativity in my life. Like I didn't want to be around negative people. I want to hear nothing negative. I want to hear nothing, no negative prognosis or negative predictions or nothing like that. I just, I just refused to have anything but positivity in my life. And, and at that point, when I began to become more, more, you know, coherent, I guess you'd say. I guess I just began to hear the voice of God more and, and realize how much he loved me, you know, that the fact that at this point in time when I was um, really, really down on myself and I was crying, I was just like weeping, just going, I can't do this, I can't fight this fight. And, and I I feel like I, I don't think I heard the audible voice of God at that point, but I heard like a still small voice in my head just saying, Matt, in your lowest low, when you're in a coma, when you're on your deathbed, when you can do nothing for yourself, completely helpless, you're valuable enough to me that I would let my son die for you, even if you're the only soul he was dying for, because you're that valuable. You know, and man, talk about just life changing to hear that the voice of God. You know that that I'm I'm that valuable. You know that he would have died for me, even in a comatose, worthless state. You know. Yeah. And so I began to realize my value and realize that I had, a, at that point, uh, we discovered that my arm was, um, I mean, it was, we knew kind of the hospital that it was bad shape, but then we began to discover that it was 
completely paralyzed from the shoulder down. And so it still is today. And that's why my book is called Two Hands. Because today I live without two hands. I wouldn't be in one of the best sets of hands behind handlebars or stone wheels because living life without two hands. But I've discovered that by the hand of God and the amazing people who surrounded me with, that I'm never, ever without two hands, you know? Yeah. And so, um, and so at home, I just began to realize that I have to embrace life as it is and then believe I can make it better, you know? Yep. And so I just took it one day at a time, was doing physical therapy two or three times a week. And at that point, I was doing cognitive therapy for my brain and uh, speech therapy because my speech really slurred in the very beginning. You notice now it's, it's a miracle, man. I can speak pretty clearly. Yep. And I recorded I recorded an entire audio book in my own voice, and I was able to do that. And the doctors at one point told my family I probably wouldn't ever speak fluently or normally ever again because my speech is really slow for a long time. And now I now want to, part of my living is I, I speak for a living, you know? So yeah. It's just, it's just a flat miracle. And so the, the, the journey at home was the longest part of the journey, just having to re-figure life out. Like, how am I going to live within my new normal? You know, because it's not like if, because today, living with one arm, I don't talk about it much, I don't cry about it much, I don't complain about it much, because it's my new normal. That's normal for me, you know? Yep. I've, I've learned how to live with one arm, but one of the biggest problems is I came home with, with uh, unbelievable intense nerve pain in my left hand, my broken, my paralyzed hand. Okay. And, and, and well, really pretty much from my bicep down was really bad pain. The wrist was the worst part. My hand, was, hand always burned, but. So basically what happened is that whenever you damage your spinal cord like that, that location, um, the left arm nerves are right in the location where the spinal cord is damaged. And so it was sending a false signal from my spinal cord to my brain that says your hand burns, right? Yep. And so when that happens, it's, it's a false signal, but it's very, very real, right? Yeah. I mean, it's unreal. It's un- unbelievable. And so what was happening is you can't massage it, you can't reposition it, you can't move it, you can't do anything with it because it's, it's phantom, right? It's false. They call it phantom pain. And so it would burn 24 hours a day, seven days a week, nonstop, just unbelievable burning. In the hospital, they had like a lot of IV medication and lots of pretty high end medication stuff. And so I was able to bear it. But then when I got home, I got back to more of like an at home dosage. It was brutal. Like we're talking, I, I can't even describe it to you because the only person who can understand it is somebody who's actually experienced it. Because the best way to describe it is like when you go outside and your hand gets cold. Yep. You come back inside, it gets warm too fast. Yeah, you get that tingling. That burning. Burning times tingling. Times that by 20 in the ballpark, you know. Oh. And so all doctors tell me for remedy was that it's a complex injury and, and it's at your spinal cord and all we can tell you is long-term medication, you know, that we have to put you on a, a long-term medication dosage that fits you. And I was drugged out of my mind at the point that I literally was, like, fog-minded. No, I knew I was, I, mean, I was, I was part of my speech slurring, part of my cognitive ability was just because I was on so many drugs. You know, I was a, at one point, this kind of gives you an idea, I was on eight hydrocodone, oh my a God. few Oxycontin, and a few Lyricals in all, all 24 hours. You're floating on a cloud all day. <laughs> you're you're basically floating. Yeah, exactly. You're just you're 
you have to have it. Like I cut it back as far as I possibly get to six hydros and I was able to eventually kick the oxy top, but it was still, um, it was, I, I was just in uh, excruciating pain. And so sometimes I'd have these weird like pulsations and mostly it was at night. I wake up in the middle of the night, these weird like pulsations where it burn, burn really bad and pull back and burn, burn really bad and pull back. And I woke up one time about two in the morning and I had these unbelievable pulsations and I was just weeping to the point I was just so burnt out and so tired and so sick of the fight that my I was crying so much my pillowcase was damp. It was just ball. I, mean, I literally, I feel like I almost cried every tear out of my eye that night. Wow. And I finally, I mean, start, I mean, I, I at that point I just said F it, but I said the actual word, of course. I said F it, I'm <laughs> done. I can't do this anymore. And I yelled at God. And I, I cried out to God and I said, I can't do this anymore. And I, I already kind of thought it through, and I made a firm decision that night to to commit suicide, take my life. And I had already kind of thought through what I would do, and so I got my stolen little gear bag out of the closet, and I was living by myself at this point. And so I I got got my gear out, and I began to piece on my riding gear one piece at a time. I got my pants on, and got my boots in place, and, and got I was going to gear up. My plan was to gear up head to toe all my riding gear. At that point, I was even driving some. I was uh, somehow driving. I'm not sure if I was safe, but I was driving, driving some. And so I was going to drive down the nearby big tall bridge over the Snake River. And when we get out and all my riding gear, slide the helmet from the avalanche, the actual orange, orange helmet that fell off my head in the avalanche, slide the helmet back on my head and jump off the bridge. I mean, that's way in that condition with all this clothes on, I would drown. I would die. Oh, that's horrible. I said, God, what I said is God didn't get the job right then the first time. I'm going to gear up and finish this. And so I, I was, I was pulling my jersey into place, to put on my top half. And right then, God brought back a thought that I would say it stopped me, stopped me not dead, but alive in my tracks, you know? Yeah. It stopped me because he brought back a thought about my middle son, Ethan, who, at that point, when he was really young. He loved dogs. He just absolutely loved them. He, was, he didn't have his own dog. Yeah, he has his own dog now, but he didn't have his own dog then. And, and there's, so his grandparents, Black Lab, Sadie, was like his dog. He took care of her and fed her and loved her. And, and recently, before the suicide thought, uh, Sadie had died of old age. Ethan was just totally crushed. He's only like you know, four years old at this point. And so he's just crushed. Like, how can my dog be gone? Where's she at? How, why is she gone forever? And just could not process death, you know? Yep. And just and I, one day, like five days after the dog had died, I found him by himself in his bedroom crying. And I went there and said, buddy, what's wrong? Are you okay? You know? He goes, daddy, my dog is gone. She's, she's gone. She's never going to come back. And I tried to encourage him. I said, buddy, it's okay. I believe dogs go to heaven. I think she's in heaven. You can see her again someday. He said, but daddy, I don't want her to be in heaven. I want her to be here with me. And so God brought back that thought in the middle yep. of that suicide that he, I thought through the whole process of Ethan crying out for his dog. And, and I really feel like people think I might be crazy, but I really feel like in that moment, the only time in my life that I ever have, I think I heard the audible voice of God. Like, I think I really heard a real voice that very calm, very powerfully said, Matt, 
is always done. He's trust. What happens if his daddy's gone? Yeah. And man, I fell back in the bed, began to weep like unbelievable tears. Just you know, just poor tears. All right. And I, 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 at that moment, I raced that plan to drawing bar. I mean, how can I, how can I be that selfish, selfish to relieve myself from my pain and leave my boys a lifetime pain miss their daddy, you know? Yeah. And so, never has that plan been back on the drawing board since. I mean, I just, I've had some bad moments, I've had some times, but never would I take my boys to daddy away, you know? And I, I truly believe that. Uh, I can't describe to you how powerful the moment was. I really believe I heard the audible voice of God, like a real audible voice, you know, and um, saved my life. And from that point forward, I mean, that was many, many years ago. It's been uh, 14 years since the Avalanche now, and I was just, um, I just been taking one day at a time, and I've been slowly but surely getting where I can move again and shake again and walk in. And I started hiking some to, to have more exercise. And my longest hike so far is, is 10 miles. Oh, wow. And at one point, they said I would never hike my car to drive down the road. And now I hike, I hike 10 miles and hike further if I want to, you know? Yep. And um, I've, I've, I've since sold all my snowmobiles, and I've invested in a, a large pontoon boat, 24-foot party barge pontoon boat. And my family and I go out on the lake all the time and go yep. each other all the time. My, my wife's just a, a gift, and we... Uh, I, I divorced from my boy's mother about uh, only a couple months prior to the avalanche. So my life was kind of avalanche at that point, you know? Oh, wow. And so her and I did, today get along pretty good. She's remarried, I'm remarried. Life's pretty good. But I just choose to to know that I have to focus on things I can change, right? Because yep. I can't change the avalanche. I can't change how about it crush me. I can't change my paralyzed arm. I can't change my sore neck and mess something up. I can't, right? I just can't. Nope. And so I cannot afford to waste time, energy, emotion, and passion on things that I can't change. No. And so I choose to focus on things that I can change, be the change I want to see, and, and keep on pressing on every day. And, and I always say that, in fact, one of the pages I had on the wall beside my bed, in my at-home recovery, and I saw it every morning I woke up. I was right beside my alarm clock. Sitting eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, said in big, bold print, what can I do today better than I did yesterday? And so I'd ask myself that question every day. What can I do a little bit better than yesterday? Like, you just yeah. want like a, a tiny fraction better. It's, it's, it's one little improvement, you know? And so I just kept doing that. And then, and honestly, I mean, today I've, I live a, fully normal life I have, I have a paralyzed arm and I have a lot of soreness and I can't run I can't can't do all, any of the athletic stuff I used to do but I'm walking and talking and moving and able to live life again so every breath I breathe is a gift you know so um, I guess that's my story in a nutshell I mean, there's lots more to it of course but that's why you read the book <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me well it's so refreshing to meet someone with such a positive outlook on life, despite, you know, such a life altering event. Um, something you wrote to me, um, our first correspondence really hit me and I wanted to kind of share it with people here. You wrote the choices we make, not the circumstances we face determine our success in life. 
those are powerful, powerful words. They really like resonated with me, and I hope it resonates with some of our listeners out there. You know, it's in in the power of prayer. I mean, wow, amazing yeah. how. Oh man, hundred You know what 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 prayer chains can really do for people. You know whether you believe in God or not, and it, it's it's yeah. I think yeah. it's imperative to to believe into something. I mean, you have to have something you you hold on to. Well, you know, you know what I found too through all is, is is I found a relationship, not religion. You know. Yep. I found I found a God that is not interested in whether I do or don't go to church, whether I do or don't sing the right songs, or I do or don't do this. I, 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 I go to church because I love to share my life with other believers, but that's not what it's all about. It's about a daily walking, talking, moving relationship with the God of the universe, you know, your creator. And so um, I got to experience that through stress and struggle and hardship that God was always there. No matter what happened, I was never alone, and God was always there. There's always a prayer away, and just it's just pretty cool to. Like you'll you could talk to your blue in the face, you talk for the rest of your life about all the reasons why God doesn't exist, and you're never going to convince me, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> I experienced it in such a real way. You know? Pretty cool. No, it's it's amazing that you're you're here, you're walking, talking, have a beautiful family, and and uh, yeah, it's. It'd be interesting to if you ever went back and talked to those same doctors that gave you the prognosis that you were basically done for. It was pretty cool because I I got to speak at a uh, skin mountain trauma conference when I was doing motivation speaking full time. Okay, I got to speak at a the skin mountain trauma conference in Sun Valley, Idaho. It was put on by San Alfonso Medical Center, who which is the hospital I spend the majority of my time at. And so after conference, I got to meet some, re- reconnect with some of my nursing staff and, and my rehab doctors there. That's awesome. And so I got to sit down and have a glass of wine with him, just kind of visit a little bit. And, and he said, Maddie goes, you know, he goes, I don't know if I necessarily believe in God or not, because most of us doctors have to at least admit there's some kind of higher power. Yep. Because we see things like stories like yours that medical science cannot explain. He goes, on, on paper, you're dead. You're not here. You're gone. I mean, on the reports, on the machines, you're, you're not here. You know? Yep. And he goes, and here you are. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> so it was pretty, pretty probable to think that, it was so almost, almost sad in a way that he'd say that, I still don't know if I believe in God or not. But, <laughs> <laughs> but still, like, so there's got to be some kind of higher power because he said there's things that human science, human life, human intellect can't explain you know so yeah some sometimes it's just the power of belief it's as simple as that yeah. that was a lot too is believing like i refuse to believe the prognosis every time a doctor would tell me what, what i wasn't going to be able to do or what i wasn't going to be able to say what i wasn't going to be able to move this move that i just i would respectfully kind of say okay but like I had this deep sense inside of me, deep belief that I wasn't done yet. I'm not done yet. I'm still going. I'm still going to keep on keeping on, you know. And so. Did you feel that, that um, you just had that drive to, to prove them wrong? Like, did you just feel like you had a burning desire? Like, I need to prove the, these people wrong. Like, I'm, I don't so, care well, what they say. It wasn't that I wanted to prove anyone wrong. It was just that I wanted to. Um, 
to give myself a better life. Like, I just I just believed in my heart that there was something better for me and I wasn't done yet. And I said like the deep calming peace that there was something okay. And I wasn't like it wasn't like a passionate drive. Okay. It was like a deep calming peace, you know what I'm saying? So Yep. But it was enough it was enough for a drive of course to keep me going, keep me working, keep me going. So I mean, cause I you, you have to have something to drive you. Yeah. yeah. Well Thank you, Matt, for your profound insight and inspirational story today. Uh, if you're interested in Matt's book called Two Hands, you can find it on Amazon. And I'll have a link for it on my social media pages and platforms. Thank you, Matt. It's also on Google, Google Books and it's on Barnes & Noble and places like that as well. But one of the things I also recommend is the, uh, on Audible. It's the audio version of the book. It's the same, same title, Two Hands. Okay. It's pretty neat because I narrated the entire book myself. It took me 85 hours wow. recording and editing to make a six-hour and 20-minute book. We went through it, and we made it as perfect as we could. There's even a point that the song my boy sang to me in the coma, the studio version of that song, yep. is mixed in. It's the theme song in the book. <coughs> and then there's a point my boys all sing it as well in that book, so it's pretty, pretty special. So That's awesome. Well, we'll definitely. And get then, there. honestly, if you ever if you ever want me to come to your church and share my testimony, my story, if you ever want me to come to your school, I mean, business conferences, anything like that, I'm happy to come. I mean, I I, I, I do charge a fee, but it's, with churches, I work it out really well for them. And yep, even with businesses, I'm super reasonable, so I just keep it. I don't. I'm not in it for the money, I'm in it for the impact on lives. So That's right. pretty cool. That's awesome. Well, we'll definitely put those links up for you. And uh, hopefully people can get a hold of Matt. And uh, here's an inspirational story. Thank you, Matt. If you like what you heard today, click the subscribe button to hear more upcoming stories. If you or someone you know have a survival story you'd like to share, contact me at I survived the wild outdoors at gmail.com.